Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Actually, we're going to start in chapter 4, which is um, the introduction to this chapter. Bill closed us with verses 16 through 18, and really this is the introduction to chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. These chapter breaks uh, that you see in your Bibles were not inspired. They were added to help us find places. And sometimes they fall in unfortunate places like this and break up a text that really needs to be together. But I want to introduce our text this morning just by reading these comments by Paul in verse 16, or starting in verse 16. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, and we can all say amen to that, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are eternal. You know, this is a real statement of encouragement to these Christians here in Corinth, and they should be to us. There's a real inclination, I think, in each of us at times to lose heart in life, to lose a sense of direction, to want to shed ourselves from the spiritual responsibilities that we hold as Christians and to kind of just go back to living a selfish, indulgent lifestyle. Paul is saying to these believers, don't lose heart. And though he uses the word momentary light affliction, sometimes we would want to say, no, it's more than that. That's what he calls them. And he says they're producing something for us, a reward for us. But he says the key to staying straight and the key to living life the way it ought to be lived is focus. And notice in verse 18, that focus is not on the things which are seen, which make that so difficult. It's on the things which are not seen. Now, at the end of verse 18, he doesn't tell us what those unseen things are, but he's going to tell us some of those as we come into chapter 5. He is going to tell us that how we view eternity and what's coming for us in eternity should make an impact on how we live now. Even down to our very bodies. And bodies is what he starts off with here in chapter 5. Verse 1, notice what he says. He says, for we know that if, we have, if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, he's talking about our bodies, and he's using the word tent because it's temporary. If it's destroyed, then we have a building. Something permanent is the implication. A building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You know, life has all kinds of unsettling transitions to it. Uh, it's unsettling when you become a teenager and go through all these bodily changes. It's unsettling when you graduate from college and you have to take your first job and you're not really sure what you want to do. It's unsettling to give up your freedoms that you have as a single and embark into this state of being bound together with someone else that you've pledged your life and love to. Because there's so many uncertainties and fears and all that. You wonder, is it going to be better than what I have now? It's scary when you change jobs. 
There's something fearful when you retire in life. Uh, we talked about that at the town meeting this last Wednesday night. There's, there's something unsettling when a church keeps growing and has to go through all these metamorphoses, so to speak, these changes, because growth brings those kind of changes. And change is scary. At least it is to me. I don't know about you. But those kind of changes really pale in comparison to the one that Paul's talking about here. The change that occurs at death. What happens when you die? Oftentimes we don't talk much about that. Uh, occasionally you'll hear something when you attend someone's funeral, but quite frankly the discussion of death is probably most appropriate before those particular occasions. But death is not something that's a popular party topic. I mean, you don't walk up in the midst of the party and say, when they're talking about the Razorbacks, and you say, yeah, well, that's nice. Now, what do you think about death? <laughs> death is something that's kind of scary. It's a fearful thing for many people. And it can be that if we go on sight. Because if you think about it, if we just go on sight, when you die, you're done. Right? Life's over. You are now history. You're no more. And yet, I don't know about you, but there's something in a statement like that that just kind of rubs against my inner man. There's something in all of us that just can't quite come to that reality. And I don't know if it's just the... The egotism of man, I don't think so. I think there's something even deeper that goes past our pride. There's something within us that says that just can't be true. Extinction. Extinction, even for the most secular man, is something hard to swallow. And of course, we create all kinds of theories to give us hope, don't we? Uh, there are many kinds of different groups that would tell you that when you die, you become a spirit and you just float about the earth. There are many religions worldwide who teach that. There are those who say that when you die, it's just a passage into another life here on earth. You die as a stockbroker, you come back as a frog or a cow or something else. But you just have these cycles. And though I'm making fun of that in one sense, there are many people who embrace that as absolute truth and see themselves as recycled life after life after life. Then there's others who say, no, that when we die, we go through the ultimate merger. We just all fuse into the cosmetic oneness of the universe. We're all one, all is one, one and all. Now those are theories and for people, some people, they offer hope. They really do. But they don't have any proof with the hope. Now the reason I point that out is because notice the first three words here in chapter 5. Paul says, for we know. Now is that not an arrogant statement? <laughs> he doesn't say, we think. He doesn't say, we hope. He doesn't say, it's my opinion that, or in my mind, this is the way it should be. No, he says, in confident assertion, and that's what that word know is actually implying, we know that when this tent is torn down, we have something even better. 
We're not going to be a ghost. We're not going to be a disembodied spirit. We're not going to be recycled into an animal. No, what we're going to do is we're going to have another body. And it's going to be permanent. And it's going to be in that permanent housing that we're going to serve God from all eternity. And you know, that should encourage us who live now. Now, how could Paul say that? How could he be so confident? It's because Paul had proved something no other religion or no other person has. He had proved. He had seen someone who had lived and preached and proclaimed to be God in the flesh die and then do something that no one else did and that's come back to life. He had talked with him. Others had talked with him. And because of him and through him, the, the shade that covering the window of eternity was lifted up just a little so that we might glimpse inside and suddenly discover that these feelings that you and I have, that we are eternal, even though everything that we look at by sight would tell us we're only temporal, that these feelings are actually substantiated by facts. We will go on. Our spirit has another destination and another body to live in. So what do we know confidently? We know confidently that when this house, this body is torn down, we have this permanent place that we're going to live in. This is the look into eternity just for a moment. And the reason he's telling that, because we have all kinds of uh, problems in this life, disease. We're trying to always keep this shell up but it's slowly winding down. And at times we want to panic and get all we can now for just us. But if we can bring eternity into time, we can realize we don't need to do that. Because this thing was meant to run down and fall apart. But in time, as we proceed into eternity, we'll have a new body, a permanent, perfect body. Now let me stretch your thinking for just a moment here. And those of you who are abstract, not abstract thinkers, this, this will be a little difficult. But you know, when I read through the Scriptures, one of the things I struggle with uh, is when we receive this body. Now if you look in the text, verse 1, and really throughout the text, and if you, by the way, looked at other texts that discuss the same subject, the sense that you get is that when we die, now follow me, when we die, we receive this new body. So when we die, we have it at that exact next moment. You know, sometimes when you're preaching a funeral and the body is there and you're talking about the future when that body will be resurrected in glory, we're thinking that that person has died and gone to be with Christ and at another point in time, yet future to us, when Christ comes back, He's going to raise this body and transform this body into a glorious permanent body, and then they'll receive it. And yet, as I read the Scripture, it seems to indicate the moment that person died, they received their new body, and yet that body's sitting there right before me. And that puts me in a little bit of a puzzle, so to speak. When you look at verse 3, it even adds to that, because verse 3 says that we long for this permanent body and inasmuch as we now once we die 
having put it on, shall not be found naked. The point is, without a body. So it seems like being naked is almost something that the Scripture is saying won't happen. And yet, we ask, well now wait a minute. How can a person who I know who just died have that body when this body that's sitting here in the hospital room is the body that's going to be transformed, which is going to be in time future, their body that they're going to possess in a permanent way. See, this is the quagmire that I found as I've read through the Scripture. We seem to have it at the very moment, and yet we seem to need to have to wait for it in time in the future when Christ comes again for His church. Do you see the puzzle there? I believe the only way you can answer that question is by stretching your imagination a bit around the subjects of time and eternity. See, in time, there's a past, present, and future. For us, we are locked into a sequence of events that must follow one another. There's a past, there's a present, and there's a future. And we follow those cycles. But when you read about eternity in the Scripture, it's doesn't have time sequences that we're locked into. It is just now. That's why we sing the hymn about Christ being the Lamb who was slain. Now listen, who was slain before the foundations of the earth. Before time. Well, we go, no, He was slain in time. At a point in time that we can now look back on. But in eternity, He was slain even before time. Now that may sound a little confusing to you, but here's what I mean by that. When a believer dies, he steps out of time and into eternity. And I believe that what the Scripture is kind of leading us to believe, though it's hard for us to understand this, is that when he steps out of time into eternity, he meets the living Christ who is at that moment coming for his church and he receives this new body. Right at that moment. Right as He died. On the other hand, we who are left in time on this earth, we, are, we have the sense that we are no bearing this man and He's gone to be with Christ like the Scripture says here in this chapter. And we're burying Him, His body, and at a point yet future when Christ comes for His church, He will resurrect His body and He'll receive His new body. So Him getting His body to us seems like something that's still future. But it's not future to Him because He's in the now. Now let me say it another way. Let's say that I die today. And the Scripture says that I receive my body. I go and immediately I meet Christ with my new body. And in 40 years from now, my son, Garrett, dies. And he goes and he receives his new body. And then a hundred years from now, his son, we'll call him Bill, he dies and he goes into eternity and he receives his body. From a time perspective, for you and me, if we were watching all these events, we would assume that those three people, me, my son, and my grandson, got our bodies at different times, right? But from an eternal perspective, when I, got, when I died, 
And I went to get my body. I looked next to me and there was my son who had just arrived getting his body and his grandson, my, his son getting his body all at the same time and all the saints of Christ getting their bodies at once in a twinkling of the eye. Because eternity has stepped into time with the coming of Christ. Okay, I've already confused everybody. Well, hey, just a little philosophical meandering. I mean, occasionally I need to do that. <laughs> so I've lost most of you for the rest of the message, I can tell. Okay, well, forget that. <laughs> Talk to me afterwards, all right? <laughs> but I promise you, there will be no intermediate state when you will be naked without your body. That's what I want you to know. And it's going to be fun, isn't it? To know that my last moment, my last breath, when I close my eyes, that moment will usher in the second coming of Christ for me. That's what I want you to know. Well, let's look at verses 2 through 4 because Paul talks about this body that we live in now. He calls it a tent. And he says, For indeed in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan. Do you all groan in your tent? Because you feel burdens? That's what he says. And we don't want to be left unclothed. In other words, we don't want to give up this body because we're afraid. But at the same time, that we don't want to be unclothed from this body, we long to be clothed with another body, as it says in verse six, 4, in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. There's something unnatural about wanting to give up this body, and yet inside, internally, we're wanting to give it up if we know we have another one that's better. That's what he's saying. You know, we took a trip when I was in seminary, and we had very little money. But Sharon and I took a trip for about two and a half weeks around the West to all these great national parks and not having much money, we stayed in campgrounds and we just had a tent. You know what it's like to live in a tent for almost three weeks? You know, there is something about watching other people in these campgrounds when they get up in the morning. It's about six o'clock and you can't sleep because it's getting hot in your tent and the sun's coming up. And you open your tent flap and you're almost with everybody else in unison. Everybody's kind of bent this way because the ground was bent that way. And you just kind of go, ugh. And try to stretch it out. In this tent, we groan, don't we? Some of us are introverted people. And we wish we could make conversation. But we don't know how. And it frustrates us. And we groan. Some of us wish we could look different. Maybe we have a physical malady. And we wish that that could go away, but it never will. And we groan. Some of us wish we could communicate perfectly with our husband or our wife or maybe our teenager. We wish it could work. We read the Scripture and we long for a day that it would work. But it doesn't work now. And in this tent, we groan. We look at our world and we realize the gap between, no matter how good your life is, that the gap between what things should be and what things are is very wide and deep. We see a world that knows no peace. 
where people are hungry, where war is imminent, where people can't communicate, where pleasure has been taken to a place where it's corrupted people's lives. We groan. Did you know Jesus groaned in this life, in His body? He did. Look over in Mark 7, just for a moment. He groaned. He sighed, the Scripture says. In Mark 7, He's been encountering all kinds of resistance, but He goes on proclaiming the Gospel and healing people. And when you get to Mark 7, a man is brought to Him that is death. And I want you to look in verse 33. And He took this man aside from the multitudes by Himself, and He put His finger into His ears, and after spitting, He touched His tongue with the saliva. He couldn't hear or speak. And looking up to heaven, now watch this, with a deep sigh, He said to this man, be open. And His ears were open, and the impediment of His tongue was removed. Just that one little statement. He sighed. Max Lucado, in his little book, offers some helpful commentary on just that little phrase, he sighed. Listen for a moment. Jesus did something here I never would have anticipated, Lucado says. He sighed. I might have expected a clap or a song or a prayer, even a hallelujah or a brief lesson might have been appropriate. But the Son of God did none of these. Instead, He paused and he groaned. That seems out of place. I never thought of God as one who groans. I thought of God as one who commands, calls forth the dead, creates the universe with a word. Perhaps this phrase caught my eye because I do my share of sighing. I sighed yesterday when I visited a lady whose invalid husband had deteriorated so much that he didn't recognize me. He thought I was trying to sell him something. I sighed when the dirty-faced, scantily-clad-dressed six-year-old girl in the grocery store asked me for some change. And I sighed today listening to a husband tell how his wife won't forgive him. No doubt you've done your share of sighing too. If you have a teenager, you've probably sighed. If you've tried to resist temptation, you've probably sighed. If you've had your motives questioned or your best acts of love rejected, you have been forced to take a deep breath and let escape a painful groan. All these sighs come from the same anxiety, a recognition of pain that was never intended, of hope deferred. Man was not created to be separated from his Creator. Hence he sighs, longing to go home. When Jesus looked into the eyes of this man, the only appropriate thing to do was to sigh. It was never intended to be this way, the sigh said. Your ears weren't made to be deaf. Your tongue wasn't made to stumble. The imbalance of it all caused the Master to languish. And that holy groan Jesus uttered assures us that God still groans for His people today. He groans for the day when all sighs will cease, when what was intended to be will be. Oh, happy day that will be. Want to hear some good news? 
that should make a difference and soften the pain some of us feel now when we wonder whether it's worth it, when we look around and we see with our eyes things as they appear to be, and we want to live for them rather than looking past the appearances to things as they really are and knowing it's worth living for Christ now. Did you know there was going to be a day when there will be peace? It's a guarantee. Did you know there will be a day when there will be no one who is hungry? When everyone will be healthy? When justice and righteousness will reign? When the earth will flourish in satisfaction and fulfillment? And when you and your infirmities and your pain and your sighs and your groans when you get up that morning and put your feet on the floor and you think about the responsibilities that have mounted up before you and you go, there will come a day when all that will be swallowed up in life. That's good news, isn't it? It's not a fantasy either. If someone would have just told me that, and I would have said, give me proof, and he says, I have no proof, but I think that's the way it is, I'd laugh. But when a man stands before another man with nail prints in his hands and his feet and says, it's true, I can believe it. And that's what Paul is trying to encourage us with as well. God has told us, God has documented it, But if you'll notice now, if you go back to chapter 5, God has also done something else. He's given us a down payment that what we're talking about right now will occur. Notice in verse 5 it says, Now He who prepared us for this very purpose, what purpose? To be swallowed up in life and immortality with a permanent body. He who prepared us for this purpose is God who has given His Spirit to us as a pledge. The word pledge in all Old Greek of this day just meant down payment. It just meant giving earnest money to say that you're going to follow through. As that word has come through the centuries now and is used in modern Greek over in Greece today, the word erabon means engagement ring. God's Spirit is His engagement ring to tell us that what we sense deep down inside that contradicts all we see with our physical eyes is true. There's a happy day ahead. There is glory. There is a new body that awaits us. There is new service. And it's important to understand that because if you really understand that as a fact, it will change the way you live now. You need to bring that fact into time. Now, how does Paul share that with us? Well, he does in verses 6 through 10 in two ways. If you'll notice in verses 6 through 10, there are two therefores. Look at it in verse 6. And then also look again at verse 9. Do you see those two therefores? Anytime you see a therefore in the Scripture, it's a signal that an application is ahead. In other words, Paul has been saying some things, and now he's going to say what all that means to you and me today. Let's look at the first one. He says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we were at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. That is a face-to-face relationship with Him. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from this body and to be present 
with the Lord. Now Paul can say that because he's confident of what's going to take place in the future. Are you? Do you know what happened at your death? Do you have that kind of confidence that it's much better to be absent from this body, this great transition, so as to be present with the Lord? It was for Paul. Now I know when I read that, some of you are saying, what does that mean? Because that's an awkward sentence. Let me just give you the simple sentence without the modifiers. Look at verse 6. It would go, go this way. Therefore, being always of good courage, now skip down to verse 8, we are of good courage. That's the simple sentence. In other words, the focus is on courage. You know why? Because it takes courage to live for Christ in this life. Do you know that? It takes courage for a person to believe that what he sees, the real, are only mirages of fulfillment. Everybody thinks if they have this, they'll be happy. Or thinks if they get there, they'll be happy. Or thinks if they have these securities, they'll be okay. But the reality is, as people who are on the leading edge and get those things have discovered, though they have them, they don't bring the fulfillment that they promised. Paul is saying it takes courage to live for Christ now. Now, he knew that because he faced all kinds of dangers, stonings, beatings, and those kind of things. Others of us know it for different reasons. I got a letter from a missionary friend this week who in the Philippines was talking to a Chinese brother of his who had been an evangelist in China for a number of years, but in prison in China the last 17 years. And here's what he said in his letter about this evangelist. He said, because of the authorities' hatred for him and the Lord he served, he removed the waste from the human cesspool pits, which were 80 inches deep, to be applied as fertilizer to the gardens. It was there, however, that he found he could be alone with God to pray and to sing, to quote Scripture. It became the most precious place where God could meet with him in a special way. And as he would go to those cesspools, which he called gardens, he would sing the hymn, I come to the garden alone. Wow. You know what it takes to be able to do that? courage. You know what it takes to be able to stand firm under that kind of humiliation? Focus on the future. The belief that this is not all there is. The assurance with the Spirit ministering that assurance that there will come a time where this excrement will be transformed into, can you believe this? An eternal weight of glory. Look at chapter 4. Verse 17. Is it worth it? By sight, no. But when you look at the things unseen, absolutely. Absolutely. You know what I think is the most difficult thing for us? Because we're not persecuted and most of us aren't humiliated and I don't think we're in any imminent danger, so to speak. But you know, the worst test that I know that you can give a Christian is to give him peace and prosperity. Because when you give him those two things, they look so good and so real 
that he lives his life for them rather than for Christ. You know, it takes courage to look past those things. It does. It takes courage to turn down a job promotion which looks so good in order to have more time with your family. It takes courage to give your money away when the whole world is saying, live for yourself. It takes courage to do those things. But Paul says, if you want an application of this new life that's before you, be of good courage now. Secondly, verse 9, he says, Therefore, also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. Now, why should we be pleasing to God? Well, you know the old insurance commercial, buy met, it pays? What Paul's going to say is, is our ambition is to be pleasing to God, first because He loves us and we love Him, but secondly because it pays. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may be recompensed, that means repaid, for the deeds in the body, according to what we have done, whether good or bad. Now, he's not talking about what the Scripture indicates when it talks about this great white throne judgment when all humanity stand before God who have not embraced Him and He sentences them. He's talking about a different kind of judgment. The judgment seat of Christ, which is a judgment for us, the church, the believers in which we stand before the Lord Jesus and are recompensed not for our sins, but for our service. What we have done, how we've served Him, how we've lived out courageously, whether it's in the midst of danger or it's in the midst of peace and prosperity and pleasure. Oftentimes this verse is used as a club to get you to do something. I want to use it this morning the way I think it is to be used, and that is to be a motivation, a positive motivation. Can you think about those groans and those pains and those inconsistencies, and yet there comes a day when you have trusted Christ and lived for Him. Can you believe that there is a day ahead where you stand before Him with your friends, with your family, with His church, all in attendance, and He recompenses you he repays you for those things that nobody else has seen, nobody else seemingly cared about, but you did it as an act of courage because you believed that there was an eternity and you brought that eternity into your time. And there you stand and you are glorified before your friends. That's what He's promising here. And notice, we must all appear at that place and we will all give an account. But hopefully, to give an account of responsible living, of purity, of serving Christ, of helping others, so that we might wear this badge or this insignia or whatever it will be into eternity. You know, I really believe that what the Scriptures teach, because some of us have such a small uh, view of eternity, I think that this kind of glorying at the judgment seat is not something that takes place and then is forgotten. In some way, I get the indication that 
whatever we receive there will be part of us for the rest of eternity. Just like when Jesus walks in eternity and we know what He's going to look like, He will walk and what does He still carry in His glorified body? Remember? Scars. Badges of service right here. That's what He will carry with Him. And we'll glory in that every time we see Him. But how about us? How about my Chinese friend that I just mentioned? Can you imagine walking around and seeing certain people by the way they live and in some way, unknown to me how it will actually take place, they are actually carrying with them the status of their courageous acts in this time on earth. It's an amazing thing. How well we live now in the present should enhance our glory and status in eternity. But it takes courage. It takes a God-pleasing ambition. And it takes a focus on unseen realities. Now let me just give you three things that might be helpful suggestions of keeping eternity and time in your life. The first would be this. We need friends who will reinforce eternity in our daily living. In reality, that's exactly what Paul's doing. See, these, these Corinthians could get caught up in the world and go months, years even, without thinking how their life affects anything in eternity. And Paul's breaking through and says, no, no, don't forget this. <laughs> there's more. Don't get focused too much on you because there's more. And we need friends who will help us and keep telling us and reminding us that it is worth it. Because you know what? It is. Gosh, it'll be a great thing for me to be standing next to you and you believe that. And I feel like I had one little inkling of a part in that. Secondly, we need the Scripture to show us why it's worth it. And it would be good for you to study what the Scripture has to say on rewards. That's not a, that's not a bad thing. The reason I know it's not bad is because God tells us that over and over again, that that's worthy of working for. Not to the exclusion of just loving Him, but it is worthy of working for those things. Then thirdly, we need to take time, I think, just time away. This is kind of the discipline of meditation, so to speak, to just imagine, just let our imagination think about what it might be like in eternity. Let me give you a good starting place that might just help start that. Sometime you need to go down to a bookstore and buy C.S. Lewis's little book. It's just a tiny little book called Weight of Glory. He took it from 2 Corinthians 4. And he just helps you envision eternity like no one else can. And I tell you, it is a mind-blowing experience to read that little book. Peter Marshall tells the story of a little boy well, actually, he was a young boy by this time named Kenneth. And Kenneth had an incurable disease. He was dying. And for a number of years, his mother tried to keep him involved in all these kind of activities and things like that because, well, she really couldn't face it and she didn't want him to have to face the inevitable either. But as the months went by, it became clearer and clearer to Kenneth that ultimately he was going to die. He was never going to get well again. And so on one occasion, as he was sitting there listening to his mom read a book to him, he said, Mom, 
What is it like to die? Will it hurt? And she almost broke up into tears and walked out into the kitchen and grabbed hold of the sink and knew at that moment she needed courage to be able to answer that question clearly because he needed it. He knew he was going to die. And she asked God to help her come up with a way to explain it accurately and yet in a way that he could hold on to. So she came back and she said to him these words, Kenneth, do you remember as a little boy when you would go out and play hard, play to the point of exhaustion, and mom would come by and pick you up in the car, but before we got home, you would be sound asleep. Too tired to even change your clothes or go upstairs. And yet in the morning, much to your surprise, you would wake up and find your clothes had been changed. You had your pajamas on. And you were in your own room and in your own bed. And it was like magic. But you knew your father had come along with his big arms and taken you where you belonged. And he changed your clothes and he put you in your room just where you belonged. Kenneth, death is just like that. We grow tired. And we play so hard and we give it all that we've got to get home. But we fall asleep exhausted before we get there. But you know what? When we wake up, it's a pleasant surprise. Because when we wake up, we are home. We're there. A home much sweeter than your own room and then your own bed. And we're not wearing pajamas, but we're wearing a new body that can't get sick, that can't wear out, that has been swallowed up in life. That's what it's like to die. And with that, the little boy smiled. He was so comforted. It made so much sense. And he never asked again. And two weeks later, he was changed. That's what God is offering to us. The same kind of comfort. And I hope you will be comforted by that, not when you're sick, but today as you're well, so that you can live for Him. Let's pray. Lord, it's so good to read those four little words in the first verse of this chapter. We know we have. And for some of that, Father, for some of us here, that truth means so much. For others of us, we haven't taken thought of eternity, but we should. Because one day we will be there and we will find that this life was not a game. It was for real. And that the things that you said were not fantasies. They were facts. 
And so, Father, encourage us, not only with loved ones we have lost, but in our own groanings, in our own pains, in our own sense of discouragement at times where we would want to just collapse and live for ourselves thinking that's all there is. Help us to walk courageously. And help us to walk in such a way that when we stand before You, it really will be home. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.